Luke and Obi-Wan were in a cantina eating corn. At least, Luke was trying to eat corn. There was so much butter slathered over the cob that it kept slipping out of his grasp. Finally, Obi-Wan noticed the predicament and said, Use the forks, Luke. Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is the Movie Chronicles. This episode, we examine the franchise releases of 2015, starting with the fourth unnecessary sequel to Star Wars, The Forks... I mean, The Force Awakens in... Star Wars 7, The Force Awakens. Director and script, J.J. Abrams. Script, Lawrence Kasdan and Michael Arndt. Director of photography, Dan Mindel. Editor, Marianne Brandon and Mary Jo Markey. Music, John Williams. Actors, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Andy Serkis, Donald Gleeson, Anthony Daniels, Max von Sydow, Max von Sydow, Peter Mayhew, Simon Pegg, Warwick Davis, Thomas Brody Sangster, Daniel Craig, Alec Guinness, Ewan McGregor, Frank Oz, and Ed Sheeran. There are many reasons for fearing the worst from any Star Wars sequel. There are six previous films, and only two were any good. That's a one in three success rate. Not good odds to assume a good film, and even lower odds when you consider the previous four sequels were sucky, and not in a good time gal kind of way either. The franchise has been sold to Disney. This is both good news and bad news. The lack of George Lucas means one can hope for, at least, a better quality script. Disney, however, didn't buy the franchise because it is committed to the Star Wars universe. It bought it so it could sell toys and other merchandising. The universe is only a delivery mechanism to push the product to the intended demographic. The involvement of J.J. I never saw a lens flare I didn't like Abrams as director left me with the impression that if I didn't hope for too much, I might not be disappointed. This is the man who destroyed the Star Trek franchise by twisting the series away from a hard science grounding to a fantasy, simply because he hates science. Reality won't let him do the things he wants to do, i.e. he's too lazy to find out what would really happen, which is usually way cooler than what he shows. The MacGuffin in The Force Awakens, apart from the distracting idiocy of the title, what is the Force Awakening from? How can it be dormant? The implication is that the Force is something of the Jedi, rather than something Jedis and others can access. It's like saying, the electromagnetic force awakens, when ever since creation it has never been asleep. 
Suck loose use of language is what I've come to expect from J.J. I hate science, Abrams. Anyway, the MacGuffin is the search for Luke Skywalker, who has disappeared in a huff after one of his pupils turned against him. The only pupil, it seems. He does this because... Well, that's what heroes do at the first sign of resistance. Admittedly, the pupil is the son of Han and Leah. Luke might just be trying to avoid that awkward phone call that goes, Hi, sis, I'm calling from Jedi school. Sorry, but I had to disembowel and decapitate your son because he was turning out into a fascist dickhead. That kind of call would be as much fun as trying to play a game of strip poker with the shade of Obi-Wan. The new elements in the mix include a runaway stormtrooper, an unsubtle reference to America's slave ideology, who has decided fascist control weakens society. He is named Finn. Hmm, a Jaws reference in a Star Wars movie. Finn is the most blatant piece of tokenism I've seen in American films since The Empire Strikes Back. His very presence only highlights how white-bred the Star Wars series is. And where can his character go? He's a sideshow of a sideshow. With any luck, he'll have some Huck Finn-type adventures with Poe Dameron. Dameron is a rebel pilot. I think the casting call went, Rugged good looks and screams like a girl. His adventure starts the film, and then he drops out of the narrative almost entirely. When he reappears after being captured and tortured, he is a free man. I'm guessing a little Lawrence of Arabia thing going on with leather fetishistic Kylo Ren. Ren is the son of Han Solo and Leia Organa, the character who tries to fill the shoes of Darth Vader by doing a bad impression and being a whiny little git. I might have been hasty calling Finn the most blatant Hollywood example of tokenism in years. To round out the core cast of the film, we have Rey, a female scavenger with Jedi-like powers. Hollywood now allows women to kick ass, so long as it's done boyishly. If they actually behaved within a feminine perspective, it would be so... emasculating. Actually, I'm having second thoughts about the word emasculating. Can you actually emasculate a Hollywood executive when they haven't had the balls to come up with an original idea in over 50 years? As to the plot, derivative is a word that comes to mind. Once again, a planet-destroying machine is created with a similar weakness to all the previous planet destroyers. Once again... It blows up. Taxpayers are overjoyed at another colossal misuse of their money. This is not my main complaint with this plot. There is no reason to destroy this planetary-scale Death Star. It will take years for the beam, a form of light, to strike anything it is targeting outside its own star system. It is targeting, in the film, an object in the position it was in a millennia ago. By the time the beam reaches this spot, the object will have moved twice the distance from that spot. That is, double the distance between where the object actually is and where the targeting system believes it to be. 
This is before we consider objects getting in the way of this beam and thus dissipating its energy, or objects getting near the beam and affecting its trajectory through gravity. Consequently, there is zero chance of the beam actually striking its intended targets within the time constraint of the narrative. This is the reason, Mr. J.J. I hate science, Abrams, that the Death Stars had to be manoeuvred into a position within the star system of the planet it intended to destroy. Han Solo turns up to help the rebels and fails again to show some tough love to his son, with the result that justifies his absentee fatherhood hereafter. He never uses an argument like, don't you think there's a reason why you're having trouble joining the dark side? His son is a Severus Snape look-alike, waiting for the moment to sneer. Harry Potter. The moment never arrives. He does get to handle his triple-handed phallus symbol and engage in a teenage rape fantasy, although the first time is male-on-male action. Poe Dameron got all squealy with excitement. On the other hand, being taken up the back end of the mind by a girl must be a bit of a bummer. Shades of Myra Breckenridge? The scene does highlight how anal fascist ideology is, which is more than the rest of the film achieves. I should also mention Princess Leia Organa. What mother would let her son hang out with the bull-buggering Bishop of Bath and Wells? Oops, I mean the Dark Lord of the Sith. The last Dark Lord turned out to be a really great role model for a child, right? Isn't it more probable she would grab her son by the ear, yelling, Right, mister, if you can't play nice with your uncle, then you're grounded for life. Instead, she is presented to us as a career woman who, like her husband, has abandoned her parental responsibilities. My sneering might make me sound like I hate the movie. I don't. It's a good introduction to the series. It should have aimed to be something more than just that. Scriptwriter Michael Arndt was born on November the 11th, 1965 in Harris County, Texas, USA. Michael's father was a member of the Foreign Service, which meant they moved around. A lot. Michael graduated from the Tisch School of Arts at New York University. He worked for a time as a script reader and then became the personal assistant of actor Matthew Broderick. He quit this job in 1999 so he could concentrate on script writing. The script Michael was working on was Little Miss Sunshine, which, while it was loved as a film, went into production hell. He next became involved in the Toy Story and Hunger Games franchises before deciding he wanted fries with that and joined the Star Wars team. His script was rewritten by Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams. Michael said, I figured I'd probably write 50 scripts in my life. Of those 50, I figured maybe five would be produced and that maybe one or two would be successful. As to the rewrites, he said, My thing is that most scripts aren't bad scripts. They're just not finished yet. Actor Alec Guinness was born on April 2nd, 1914 in London, and he died in 2000. Alec recounted his early years. 
My birth certificate registers me as Alec Guinness de Cuff. My mother at the time was a Miss Agnes Cuff. My father's name has left an intriguing speculative blank. When I was five years old, my mother married an army captain, a Scot named David Stiven, and from then until I left preparatory school, I was known as Alec Stiven, a name I rather liked, though I hated and dreaded my stepfather. I was sort of pushed off to boarding school, but it became the most solid part of my life. There were the same boys, term in and term out, and in fact it was the holidays that were never stable. I never knew in what hotel, in what town, I would find my mother. Alec won a two-year scholarship to study drama, recalling, I don't know what else I could do but pretend to be an actor. One of the judges for the scholarship was John Gielgud, who cast him in the 1934 production of Hamlet, the same year he appeared in his first film. He didn't make another until 1946. Alex studied at the Faye Compton Studio of Dramatic Art while working as an advertising copyboy. He got his first job as a professional actor, debuting in the play Libel at the King's Theatre Hammersmith. Of his craft, Alex said, An actor is an interpreter of other men's words, often a soul which wishes to reveal itself to the world but dare not, a craftsman, a bag of tricks, a vanity bag, a cool observer of mankind, a child, and at his best, a kind of unfrocked priest who, for an hour or two, can call on heaven and hell to mesmerize a group of innocents. Alec served in the Navy during World War II, but also noted, I gave my best performances during the war trying to be an officer and a gentleman. His war career began as a seaman in the Royal Naval Volunteer Service in 1941. He received a commission as sub-lieutenant in 1942 and then temporary lieutenant in 1943. This rapid career advance had more to do with attrition during the war years than to his nautical abilities. Later, as he began to attract critical notice, Alec talked about his acting process, saying, I try to get inside a character and project him. One of my own private rules of thumb is that I have not got the character until I have mastered exactly how he walks. The fame of Alec in the 50s depends on his comic performances in the Ealing comedies. The 60s were notable for his work with director David Lean. The 70s was when his career drifted into the Star Wars orbit. Alec did dislike Star Wars, and he recounted why he tried to encourage George Lucas to kill off his character. He agreed with me. What I didn't tell him was that I just couldn't go on speaking those bloody awful banal lines. I've just had enough of that mumbo-jumbo. Later, he added, apart from the money, I regret having embarked on the film. I like them well enough, but it's not an acting job. The dialogue, which is lamentable, keeps being changed and only slightly improved, and I find myself old and out of touch with the young. He did have a nice word to say about the cast. The only really disappointing performance was Anthony Daniels as a robot, fidgety and over-elaborately spoken. Not that any of the cast can stand up to the mechanical things around them. To sum up his Star Wars experience, he is quoted as saying, Big part, fairy tale rubbish, but could be interesting. From the big to the small.
Ant-Man. Director, Peyton Reed. Script, Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish and Adam McKay. Script and actor, Paul Rudd. Director of photography, Russell Carpenter. Editors, Dan Lebenthal and Colby Parker Jr. Music, Christoph Beck. Actors, Michael Douglas, Evangeline Lilly, Corey Stoll, Bobby Cannavale, Anthony McKee, Judy Greer, Michael Pena, Stan Lee, and Chris Evans. I was hoping this film, in particular its troubled production history, would end Hollywood's fascination with adapting superhero comics. It was not to be. Part of that is the incestuous relationship between Disney and Marvel Comics. They both need to justify that relationship to each other by contributing to each other's finances. This means the main reason for boring us with ever more superheroes is because two management teams suspect they may have made a mistake. The first thing about Ant-Man that hits you is the racial stereotyping of Mexicans. This hits you because it highlights how stupid the setup is. The hero is released from jail. He has been tried for cyber theft. Having discovered a corporation was ripping off its customers, he redistributed the wealth to its victims. This has given him a rep as a hacker and a Robin Hood character. He is released into the arms of his friend, a career criminal. We soon learn our hero not only has the skill set of a hacker, he also has the skill set of a career criminal. This set of skills he uses to rob a retired industrial scientist. The implications of all this are that our hero is a career criminal who only got caught the one time he acted altruistically. The scientist turns out to be a puppet master. He figures anyone smart enough to break into his safe is smart enough to break into his former corporation and destroy his research, which is about to be put into nefarious uses by the new manager who puts profit above ethics. As the Mexicans say in the film, we're the good guys now? The comment might be funny if it weren't indicative of the racism of this film. Why not, for example, make the hero Mexican? Composer Christoph Beck was born in 1968 in Montreal, Canada. Christoph began piano lessons at the age of five, and by 11 he was playing Bee Gees songs by ear and performing in his own band. At high school, he learnt piano, saxophone and drums. Christoph studied music at Yale University, where he wrote two musicals and an opera. After graduation, he moved to Los Angeles to attend the USC Film Scoring Program to study under composer Jerry Goldsmith. Composer Buddy Baker, then at USC, got him his first TV scoring job, which became his calling card for movie scoring commissions. Like many an aging film policeman, I'm too old for this shit. Yes, it's Avengers Age of Ultron. Director and script, Joss Whedon. Director of photography, Ben Davis. Editor, Jeffrey Ford and Lisa Lassick. Music, Danny Elfman and Brian Tyler. Actors, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Evans, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, 
James Spader, Samuel L. Jackson, Don Cheadle, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, Idris Elba, Andy Serkis, Julie Delphi, Stan Lee, Josh Brolin, Lou Ferrigno, and Zach Pierce. You should know by now how uncomfortable I have become with US superhero movies. Those little vessels of American exceptionalism. Less blacks and Hispanics, and exceptional only in being exceptionally moronic. As an example, within this film, Dr. Bruce Banner is supposed to be a genius, yet he isn't smart enough to have his shirts made from the same material as his pants. Moron! Of course, the reason the Hulk wears pants in the comic is because Hulk-sized baubles would make white teenagers feel inadequate. In the movies, it is assumed anyone not white has giant baubles and is therefore a threat to everything decent, i.e. anything that implies a common humanity is a threat to the status quo. The plot of this film, if I can call it that, has Tony Stark decide unilaterally to build a wall around the Earth to make the aliens pay. At least he doesn't suggest the aliens pay for it. The reason seems to be that all aliens are criminals who just might want to rape white women. White men being apparently safe. White guys never have a probe shoved up their butt. This plan goes wrong and destroys a small English-speaking East European nation. The nations of the Earth don't point out that this proves Ultron's thesis. The real threat to Earth is the Avengers. Tony Stark uses alien technology to create an AI android to protect the Earth. The android calls itself Ultron. Stark has to create a new, improved version to combat Ultron, because, you know, he can be trusted not to create another homicidal artificial life form. (sighs) Each of the main characters is a teen boy's wet dream come to life. Joss Whedon tries to fight this fantasy, and it keeps blowing up in his face. These are characters with no morals, no scruples, and no ideas. Beyond, violence resolves everything! The real problem is the difference between the comic and the movie. Movies require greater depth of character, and we are not ever getting that in the Marvel Universe. A universe where only the Hulk grows balls. Composer Danny Elfman was born on May the 29th, 1953, in Los Angeles, California, USA. Danny was rejected from his elementary school orchestra for having no propensity for music. This changed in high school when he discovered jazz, Stravinsky, and 20th century composers, or, as he later said, I get drawn to things that don't make sense, and I learned early on not to resist that. After touring the world, by which I mean Africa via France, Danny was asked to be musical director for the street theatre group The Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo by his brother Richard. 
Richard then produced the movie Forbidden Zone, shot in 1977 and released in 1982, and asked Danny to write the score. Tim Burton then invited Danny to score Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and it was game on! Danny was later to say, after many collaborations with Tim, People expect us to have some invisible shorthand, but it never gets any easier. Tim is just as complex now, maybe more so. Every time I play music for him, I'm nervous. I'm as nervous as I was that first occasion. Countless times I've played something and watched him put his head in his hands and start pulling at his hair. I've never been unhappy with where we ended up, but most of the time we've had to spiral around quite a bit to get there. You have to be half composer, half psychiatrist. Robert Downey Jr. was born on April 4, 1965, in New York City. Robert moved to Los Angeles with his father when his parents divorced in 1978. With hindsight, this was a mistake as his father was a drug addict and exposed his son to the lifestyle and handed the addictive personality on to his son. Junior said of this, It's like I have a loaded gun in my mouth, and I like the taste of metal. Of his talent, he noted, I know very little about acting. I'm just an incredibly gifted faker. Next episode, I'll continue the sequence of best science fiction movies of all time with 1927's Metropolis, which will be followed by the last of the Pachis episodes. As both of these are bonus material, then if you're not a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter, you'll be missing out for the next seven days. I must admit, this is not how I originally planned things to happen, but as they say, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip and also a little inside view of how this podcast is set up, I'm working a year ahead of what you're hearing. On the ebook side of things, Science Fiction Movies of the 50s and Best Science Fiction Movies of All Time Volume 1 are both well under production. The second edition of Disney in the Groovy 60s has been released at an e-store near you. Don't forget to become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter. I can't rule the world without your help. Until next episode, brush up on your fine motor skills because it'll take some damn fine engineering to get this robot to work. (laughs) 